0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another community-powered and guest-produced episode of Best of the Left Podcast. Today, we have clips from Democracy Now!, Bill Moyers, Rachel Maddow, Keith Olbermann, Ted Kennedy, Mike Papitonio, The Young Turks, Warren 26-Peace, and Congressman Robert Wexler.
1: Republican presidential candidate Ron Paul. Uh, His supporters raised more than $4 million in one day for him yesterday. Uh, Ron Paul says that he does not know the person who came up with the idea of trying trying to raise all of this money in one day for him, uh, nor does he really understand the significance of November 5th, chosen in honor of Guy Fawkes Day and in recognition of the movie V for Vendetta uh, as an appropriate thematic hook for Ron Paul's supporters Uh, to raise money for him yesterday. But in raising more than $4 million in one day, uh, Ron Paul broke the record for one-day fundraising among Republican presidential candidates. You would think that would be, I don't know, major front-page political news. Uh, In case you didn't know that it's not major front-page political news, I will tell you that the front-political page at CNN.com right now is still about the last Democratic debate from last week and how Hillary thinks she did. (laughs) Joining us now uh, is Glenn Greenwald. He's a columnist at uh, Unclaimed Territory at Salon.com. He's also the author of Tragic Legacy, How a Good Versus Evil Mentality Destroyed the Bush Presidency. Uh, Glenn Greenwald, thanks very much for joining us.
2: Glad to be here, Rachel.
1: Um, I, uh, I have been struck by how resistant the mainstream media is toward covering the phenomenon of Ron Paul. What do you think explains their resistance?
2: Well, I think the media has a tendency to take any candidacy that's not grounded in the sort of traditional, uh, familiar beltway power systems that that they like and, and adore, and and kind of demonize it and and dismiss the candidate as being this sort of frivolous loser. I mean, they did that with Howard Dean, who kind of emerged out of nowhere and and was fueled not by D.C. consultants but by you know people on the internet who who just felt that his message resonated, and and they're doing that even more so. With Ron Paul, who, who not only is running a candidacy that's very unconventional, but his views are are even far more unconventional than Dean's, and and I think that makes the establishment media confused and and disoriented and and nervous, and and their tendency is to dismiss people who do that as as being kind of uh, losers that that ought not to be taken seriously.
1: Is there a um is there a tipping point? Is there a, uh is there a political benchmark after which the mainstream media will no longer be able to? Um, dismiss him or do you feel like once assigned that role as the kind of buffoon in the race it's impossible to get out of it
2: well I think that remains to be seen I mean one thing that resonates in the Beltway more than anything else by far is cash money and that's always used as a barometer for a candidate's seriousness And, and he has now raised more money this quarter than any of the other Republican candidates and and there's no end in sight to the money that he continued to raise so they're going to not be able to um stigmatize him for much longer if that continues although he'll probably have to make a better showing in in some of these polls than he has made thus far in order to to really uh be taken seriously
1: yeah it is the issue about translating the money and the enthusiasm into actual votes um I feel like it is uh, that you're right in identifying his positions as being the reason that the mainstream media can't take him seriously. But it is. I I mean, it's it's not just about Ron Paul. It's the whole idea of being anti-war still being a novel idea to the mainstream media and to the pundit class um that i think is is at the core of this i mean ron paul is the only anti-war republican he is this this uh vocally um belligerent defender of the vocally and, de- and belligerent defender of the constitution but really it's his anti-war position that has is, that sets him apart from his republican colleagues and it's it's almost as if that whole idea that the country is against the war is still a foreign concept um to the people who cover washington politics
2: you know, I agree with that in, in one sense, um, but but not in another, because Barack Obama, for instance, is an anti-war candidate. I mean, he spoke out against the Iraq war prior to the time it was commenced and, and has been steadfast in his opposition ever since. And, and he certainly treated as a first-tier candidate and taken seriously by most national journalists. But, so all, but all, Iraq- of
1: the, all of the Democratic candidates more or less are against the Iraq war. It's not notable on the Democratic side to be against the war.
2: It, it, well, they are now that 's true, yeah. um, you know I mean Hillary is but but at the same time, I mean they are anti war and and so while um, it certainly was the case for a long time in this country that being against that war meant that you were going to be stigmatized and not taken seriously, I think the tide has shifted a little bit, I think what distinguishes Ron Paul is not so much that he is opposed specifically to the Iraq war but that he is the only candidate, really democratic or republican who's really aggressively challenging the, the root premises of our foreign policy, the general idea mm. that the U.S. should be ruling the world by military force and invading other countries when we decide it's in our interest to do so. And, and, and that really is a bipartisan consensus, and, and I think he's attacking those far more coherently than any of the other candidates. And I think that's really what accounts for this kind of stigmatization on, on the part of the Beltway ruling class, that he's really challenging and, 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 and very kind of critically attacking their, their, their mainstream ideologies.
1: Do you think there's any hope that any of the potential Republican contenders will look at what's going on with Ron Paul and try to capture some of his support by adopting some of his rhetoric, if not his positions?
2: Yeah, you know, I don't I don't think they can. I think, you know, the the top tier Republican candidates have have committed themselves to the sort of, you know, warmongering, Bush following Republican base and to start trying to backtrack now with trying to leave them in the no man's land where the base repudiated them um but they would never near be able to go nearly far enough to to sort of peel off the Ron Paul supporters. I mean, I wonder how many of the Ron Paul supporters are really truly you know, Republicans in the sense of having been committed Republican registered voters voting for, you know, George Bush and Bob Dole as opposed to new voters. Um I, I think no one really knows the answer to that. But I think what he will do certainly is is make those positions much more mainstream and and bring these issues into the debate and, and maybe you're right he will force the popping candidates to at least be a little more flexible on those positions
1: yeah it, it remains, i mean so far it's been interesting to see both the um the the swell of support for ron paul much as the mainstream media wants to ignore it and the fact that attacking ron paul is still a great way for the other candidates to get applause in the debates whenever they're before a hardcore republican audience he's a little enemy in their midst
2: Oh right I mean and, and what's- fun, so funny about that is you know the Rudy Giuliani of course who who never misses a moment to create an enemy and and attack it while he's drooling with with all sorts of rage, you know that was his big moment in 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 one of those first debates and and there was actually talk among a lot of those, those really hardcore right-wing Republicans about excluding Ron Paul from the debate once he suggested that there might be a connection between our constant invasions and occupations of Middle Eastern countries and the resentment that fueled the 9-11 attacks. Once he committed that blasphemy, they actually suggested that he ought to be excluded from the Republican Party, and yet here he is now raising more money than any other candidate when he was you know, going to be held up as, as kind of the, the traitor to the Republican Party. It's a little ironic.
1: It's ironic, and it's kind of delicious. In a way, in a way.
3: <laughs>
1: you know, uh, I saw that in your in an update to your piece today at Salon.com about Ron Paul, um, you noted uh, what Marcos from Daily Kos has said, which is that it is th- this is probably the single biggest example of people power so far in this election cycle. Marcos goes on to lament that it was a Republican and not a Democrat who was the benefactor of this and who was the, the catalyst for this. And I- I'm just wondering, now that we've seen this kind of surprising move today with Dennis Kucinich and the, the Cheney impeachment resolution. Kucinich put these re- the resolution forward. Republicans decided to support it, hoping that it would split the Democratic Party and upset Democrats to have to fight with their base about whether or not uh, Cheney ought to be impeached. Uh, certainly from the number of, of emails and phone calls I got today just from people that I know who were excited that this looks like uh, the Cheney impeachment resolution wouldn't get tabled even if it was with Republican votes, I think the left-wing base is excited about, the uh, left-wing base has measured by my friends and family, uh, is excited about what Dennis Kucinich has done. And I wonder if he might be able to uh, create a little bit on the left what Kucinich has done in the Republican Party uh, in terms of that kind of anti-establishment, anti-beltway enthusiasm.
2: It's possible. I mean, people are so hungry for any kind of of, of real leadership and and conviction. You might know this, you know, two weeks ago, as, as a result of pressure from bloggers, Chris Dodd announced that he would put a, a formal hold on any visa bill that contained amnesty for telecoms, which broke the law in in allowing spying on on its customers without warrants. And then announced that he would lead a filibuster on the the Senate. And within 24 hours, he raised $200,000 from small donors on the internet, which is more than he had raised in any quarter by far. Just from that one little announcement that he would put a hold. On that bill, people are so eager for some defiance, for some principle, for some conviction. And I think that's what accounts for Ron Paul's, uh, the passion that he's generated is, even if you don't agree with him, he's so energized and and convicted. And maybe you're right, maybe Kucinich's impeachment uh, resolution will have at least, to some degree, an effect on on Democratic voters as well.
1: We we shall see. Uh, Glenn Greenwald, thanks very much for joining us. I really appreciate it.
2: My pleasure, Rachel. Thanks.
4: If you are what you say you are, a superstar, then how? Two one two, wanna believe my own height, but it's too untrue The world brought me to my knees, what if you brung you? Did you improve on the design? Did you do something new? Where you naming on the guest list Who brung you? You, the more famous person you come through And the sexy lady next to you, you come too And then the hitman, standing outside of heaven Waiting for God to come and get me I'm too uncool, unschooled to the rules And too gumshoe, too much of a newcomer And too uncool, like Shadow and veil. I battle with it well, though I need a holiday Like Lady who sung blue Go back, whatever you did, you undo Heavy as heaven, the devil on me, two tons too you are I, I, what you say you are a superstar then have no fear. The here, And the And Oh, oh, oh
5: yeah.
6: There are lots of ways to communicate with the show, and I encourage you to do so. You can join the community forum to speak with other listeners, send emails direct to me at hippysympathizer at gmail.com, Or have your voice heard by the entire audience by calling the comment line at 206-202-0195. Links to all of these at bestofthewethpodcast.com.
7: that pisses me off about Ron Paul fans is how they constantly and conspiratorially claim that the media is blacking him out. Then how come he's being on the Glenn Beck show for an hour? How come we see him on Fox and Friends and consistently there is interview after interview, report after report, poll after poll on YouTube representing the media audience and the exposure that he's getting. I mean, have you actually sat down and listened to the guy? He's half fucking batshit insane. He's saying that people who don't pay their tax are akin to those that followed Gandhi in India. Yes, Gandhi who ejected the British from India, the British that treated the Indians like slaves, that committed genocide. If you don't pay tax, you're just as great as them. You're a hero on a level with those that followed Martin Luther King, that were beaten black and blue, in prison and tortured, so black people would have the right to work in a job, to sit on a bus or drink from a goddamn water fountain. Yes, if you don't pay taxes, if you don't support the society in which you exist and take from, you're a fucking hero. Rawr! That is a load of fucking crap. Now, in the Glenn Beck interview, he suggests that churches could start taking over medicine. Hmm, I think I prefer America being a world leader in creating disease, um prevention control methods, and pioneering cures, and shit like that. I don't want more fundamentalist nut jobs that don't believe in abortion to take over what was the world's finest medical system, the leader in teaching those medical systems. But now, to be honest, more fucking Christian fundamentalist means that, well, America is almost retarding medical investigation. Ron Paul isn't getting any support, not because of the media blackout, but because people just aren't interested. They don't care about a guy who said he's going to get rid of the income tax. They don't care about some guy saying that he's going to pull out of Iraq. And if you hadn't noticed, Republicans like being in Iraq. There might be some pacifist Republicans, there might be some non-interventionist Republicans, but if anything shows from the Republican Party and the staunch defence of George Bush at every given point, it's that they are not going to be electing an anti-war politician. It's as ignorant and as stupid to think that Ron Paul is going to end the war, is going to get elected, is going to be able to do any of the things which he talks about, because he would be stopped at every given point. The Republican electorate don't like him. The Democrats oppose all of his positions. And while he himself, whilst being a decent fella, also has some very backward ideas, particularly on race. So if you want to keep pushing this now, that's fucking fine. But by God damn! Stop complaining that he's not getting any attention, he's getting way more attention than Mike Gravel, who's actually done something for the youth of America, rather than Ron Paul, who can say some nice things, wave a fucking flag, and they get millions of dollars for it. Dennis Kucinich, who works continuously to try and impeach Bush and Cheney, when Ron Paul doesn't even support the impeachment of Bush and Cheney. You fucking morons are behind this guy when you don't even know what he stands for himself.
8: Once upon a time the federal communications commission the fcc was a sleepy bureaucracy on a quiet street in washington the fcc is the government body that sets the rules for media and for a decade now it's become a citadel of power swarming with media tycoons high-priced lawyers and well-placed lobbyists finagling to make sure that the rules and regulations are shaped and bent to allow big media to get even bigger a handful of mega media corporations have gained unprecedented control over radio, television, publishing, and the Internet. They determine what music you hear, what stories get covered, whose opinions get expressed. Until five years ago, people like you, the public, didn't matter very much at the FCC. Then, when the FCC chairman, Michael Powell, announced that the commission was about to change the rule and allow a few media giants to own even more television and radio stations in any one town, you said, enough's enough. And somewhere between two or three million of you spoke up and flooded the FCC and Congress with phone calls, emails, letters, and postcards. Now, a new chairman of the FCC, Kevin Martin, is pushing all over again to reward the Rupert Murdochs, the Time Warners, Viacom, General Electrics, and other conglomerates with what they want. And he wants it done by Christmas. If Martin succeeds in changing the rules, it'll set off another
9: wave of industry consolidation the latest since Congress passed the Telecommunications Act of 1996. That law got rid of a bunch of long-standing limits on how many radio and television stations a single company could own. As soon as the law passed, conglomerates went on a buying binge. One firm, Clear Channel, ended up owning more than a thousand radio stations and dominating the dial in some cities. Merger Mania drove the cost of stations through the roof. That made it harder for minorities to become broadcasters.:
10: Where a radio station,
4: an FM station, will cost you 200 million dollars. I don't know one of us who can go to the bank and get 200 million dollars.:
9: But conglomerates can raise that kind of money, and that's the heart of this story. Who owns the media? Six huge media firms control the major broadcast networks, more than a 100 TV stations dozens of cable channels, major newspapers, magazines and publishing houses, film studios and some of the internet's most popular websites. In radio, says WVON's Melody Span Cooper, consolidation has changed everything.
4: Radio has moved from being in the business of empowering and
1: educating people to Wall Street to making money. And that's not the big corporate conglomerates, who, oh, that's not their fault. They were allowed to do this.
4: This is the fault of government, who did not put the proper checks and balances
11: so that this could not happen. <laughs>
12: a law that was carefully developed over many years to give the executive branch the flexibility it needs while protecting the rights of americans it is the company's legal duty and their patriotic duty to follow that law nothing could be more dangerous for americans privacy and liberty than to weaken that law which is precisely what retroactive immunity is meant to do Yesterday's newspapers disclosed that in December of 2000 the National Security Agency sent the Bush administration a report asserting that the agency must become a powerful permanent presence on America's communications network. A powerful permanent presence on America's communication network. Under this administration that is exactly what the NSA has become. If the phone companies simply do the NSA's bidding in violation of the law, they create a world in which Americans can never feel confident that their emails and phone calls aren't being tapped by government. Finally, amnesty would stamp a congressional seal of approval on the administration's warrantless spying. If Congress immunizes the telecoms for past violations of the law, It'll send the message that Congress approves what the administration did. We would be aiding and abetting the president in his illegal actions. His contempt for the rule of law and his attempt to hide his law breaking from the American people. Voting for amnesty would be a vote for silence. Secrecy and illegality. There would be no accountability. No justice no lessons learned the damage won't stop there the telecommunications companies are not the only private entity enlisted by this administration and its law breaking think about blackwater and its brutal actions in iraq or the airlines that have flown cia captives to be tortured in foreign countries these companies may also be summoned to court one day to justify their actions And when that day comes, the administration may call yet again for retroactive immunity, claiming that the companies were only doing their patriotic duty as partners in fighting terrorism. The debate we're having now about telecom amnesty is not likely to be the last round in the administration's attempt to immunize its private partners. It's only the opening ground. In America, we should be striving to make more entities subject to the rule of law, not fewer. Giving in to the administration now will start us down a path to a very, very dark place. Think about what we've been hearing from the White House in this debate. The president has said that American lives will be sacrificed if Congress does not change FISA. But he has also said that he will veto any Pfizer bill that does not grant retroactive immunity. No immunity, no Pfizer bill. So if we take the president at his word, he's willing to let Americans die to protect the phone companies. The president's insistence on immunity as a precondition for any Pfizer reform is yet another example of disrespect for honest dialogue and the rule of law. It's painfully clear what the president's request for retroactive immunity is really about. It's a self-serving attempt to avoid legal and political accountability and keep the American people in the dark about this whole shameful episode. Like the CIA's destruction of videotapes. Showing potential criminal conduct, it's a desperate attempt to erase the past. The Senate should see this request for what it is and reject it. We should pass this amendment to strike Title II from the FISA bill. Our focus should be on protecting national security, our fundamental liberties, and the rule of law. Not protecting phone companies that knew they were breaking the law. I'm second to no one in wanting to make sure that our intelligence agencies have all the flexibility. Ability and authority they need to pursue the terrorists. We need to pass a FISA bill that will keep America strong and protect our liberty. The bill reported by the Judiciary Committee will do just that.
6: show is produced with the help of the members of the best of the left community you too can be a part of the show and we would love your help you can submit information about great clips you've heard volunteer to help edit these clips for the show or actually become an occasional guest producer for more information please visit the community at best of the
13: Now, there's a ton of news from over the weekend. Look at this, look at this stack. I mean, how are you going to get through this stack? This is like a week's worth of news. Uh, now, having said that, let's get started. The one thing that's got me the most worked up is Mitt Romney's speech. I, what am I going to do with the media? What am I going to do with that? Oh, what a brilliant speech. Oh, it was so good, Mitt Romney. Oh, what a good, great speech. Oh, the religion. Oh, you know, he talked about his Mormon and somebody. How he shouldn't discriminate against him. And America's about openness and freedom. Let me tell you the reality that speech sucked. I watched that whole painful 22 minutes. All right, let me summarize a couple things that happened. Number one, it was it was basically one sentence repeated over and over and over and over again uh, i love religion don't judge me for being mormon judge other people for not being religious enough i love religion i love religion i love religion i love it it's absolutely necessary except don't talk about mine. <laughs> whatever dude first of all it was so boring it was so not inspirational. The people there, there at the George H. W. Bush's uh, le, presidential library, they're forcing themselves to clap at certain times, and the media looks at that and it goes, "Oh, they were so inspired." They weren't inspired. I, lo- I watched. I heard. There was barely applause at the quote-unquote right places, and he looked wooden giving the speech. Okay, but all right. So, but let's get to his main contradictions that drove me crazy. He's like, "Let me tell you something." I'm Mormon, although he only mentioned it once, and nobody's allowed to ask me about it because it is in the tradition of America that we have religious freedom unless you're a secular atheist or agnostic, in which case we should hate you. <laughs> but look, put hate aside the word is said. He almost literally said that. He said, uh, but there are those who try to tell us that. We should, that we have a new religion in America, the religion of secularism, and it is wrong that's what he said. You know who brought you secularism, the religion of secularism to America? I uh, a guy by the name of uh, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Benjamin Franklin. you like those guys? you like apples? How you like them apples? Those are our founding fathers. I mean, I give you quote after quote after quote about how they said we should not mix state and religion. It's a terrible idea. We have to have this be a secular country. In fact, the whole point of America was to be the first ever secular country. They've lost track of it completely. But don't you see, Mitt, how that destroys your argument? How we shouldn't ask you about your Mormonism, and that we should that you. That hey, America's open and free to all religions, so let's not get at each other for the specific religions. If you get at us for being agnostic, then I'm gonna come right up your tailpipe, as soon as, as Michael Savage would say, about your Mormonism. And that's what Loris O'Donnell did the uh, other day on the McLaughlin group. He shredded Romney. He's like, look, let's get real. The religion is a cult. Their founder was. This is what O'Donnell said. Their founder was anti-American, pro-slavery, and a rapist. Okay, how you like them apples? You like apples, Mitt? How you like them apples? So, uh, let's get to it. contradiction number two in the speech. Or not? It's not a contradiction as much as a complete lack of logic. You cannot have religion without freedom. Well. That's actually not true at all. There's been religion without freedom for most of humankind. In fact, religion crushed freedom in many cases. Uh, but you know what? I'll let that one slide because it's, he's at least making it, it, an interesting point where he says, look, uh, for, and he explained it in this speech because of freedom, we can have all the different religions that we want here, unless you're an atheist or a in which case you should be crushed. But okay, put that aside for a second. Uh, if you're not those guys, um... Uh then we have freedom of religion that allows all the religions to blossom. All right, you know what, fair point, I'll take it. Uh, no problem. But then he adds a second part. And we cannot have freedom without religion. Why? That doesn't make any sense at all. I'm still trying to figure it out. If anybody's got a clue, write in to email us at the Why can't you have freedom without religion? Okay, first of all, I can of course name you at least a dozen cases where we do right now in the world, right? And it dep- and what kind of religion? I mean the the Romans were free to some degree and they believed in, you know, Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune and the gods. So were they free with religion? How about Europe? Uh right now if you're a politician in Europe and you talk about how you pray or you talk to God, you get laughed out of town. There's so hardly any religious folks left in Europe. I, know the Christian right always tell me how terrible Europe is, because they don't believe anymore, right? So are they not free? Did they lose it to, is Britain no longer a democracy? France, Germany, they're not democracies anymore? I didn't know that. But put aside, I'll put even that aside, okay? But logically, it doesn't make any sense. What, why? What, how do you connect the two? Why can't you have freedom without religion? What does religion have anything to do with freedom? It doesn't make any sense. The speech sucked. It was awful. Okay. Let me give you one more point about its repetitive nature too. It, and this I'm stretching on this analogy, so Dave, get ready to get angry. Uh, <laughs> Jesse Jackson in the nineteen ninety-six Democratic Convention gave a great speech, but it was very repetitive, right? And he talked about his how his daddy came back from the war. he said, My daddy came back from the war. They made him sit in the back of the train. After my daddy won the war, and he said it over and over, my daddy won the war. My daddy won the war. Okay, and at the end of the speech, you got uh, two things happen. One, you realize Jesse Jackson's daddy won the war. <laughs> it was almost as if mrs Jackson Senior was fighting the war by himself. They're like, you know, Normandy. Hey, Jesse Senior, go get him. <laughs> okay, like, oh, we need somebody to drop a bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Jesse Jackson, senior. He's like, I got it, I got it. I'm gonna go ahead and win this war. My daddy won the war. (laughs) (laughs) And then the second thing you got was, you know what? After he came back from the war, they shouldn't have made that guy sit on the back of the train. That was just wrong, just wrong. Back then, I'm a Republican. I tell you what, though, Jesse was inspiring. He always is with his speeches, always inspiring. But that was a good form of repetition. Okay, he drilled a point home. I got it. Romney had that without any of the inspiration, without any of the logic, without any of the the heart of the speech, the soul of the speech. Instead, it was just over and over. Uh, This country could not have been what it is without religion. Can I get further up your ass? All the religious voters on the Republican side. How far up your ass do I have to go? Dude, it doesn't matter how far you go. You can come all the way up their intestines or through their throat and back out again, and they're still not gonna vote for you because ironically, you're a Mormon. Okay? Ironically, they care so much about religion, they think your religion sucks, and so they're not gonna vote for you. But you're not getting it. You're not getting it. Alright. I'm just the reason I'm so worked up over it and I wouldn't take this much time on it, except for the fact that that The rest of the media is telling me how great it is. And I can't believe they watch the same speech I do. What they wanted was, they wanted it to be great. They wanted to be, oh, look at this. Republican telling us about how, you know, we shouldn't judge him for his religion. Having a JFK moment. Aren't we so fair in the media? We love the Republicans. We're so fair. I'm just so tired of it, man. Just have some sort of independent judgment. I can't take
14: it anymore.
3: You can't sit up.
15: dismal disastrous desert war again according to the shrub that claim is as empty and ridiculous today as it was almost five years ago when our fraudulent little commander-in-chief stood on an aircraft carrier you might remember and declared mission accomplished on that day today in the same breath that Bush GOP cronies beat on their chest and declare victory the shrubs telling us that he has the bar set even lower for what he considers very positive movement in Iraq. You see, he doesn't talk about stopping the civil war slaughter that now has moved out of Baghdad. It's moved completely out of Baghdad to almost every remote part of Iraq. He avoids entirely the discussion about how Sunni foreign terrorists have united with Sunni Iraqis for what's become virtually an endless civil war against Iraq Shiites and Kurds and how that instability is just continuing to open the door further to enhance the Al Qaeda storyline that there will never be peace as long as the U.S. is an occupier of a Muslim nation. That's what they've said for years. Instead, Bush tells us that he sees victory when there's a passage of an Iraqi budget. That's real progress when you're looking for damn near anything to call positive, anything to call a victory. And he tells us real victory is when bath party members are allowed to participate in government that makes all that blood and carnage justifiable in Shrub's tiny little mind. But again, the mainstream media continues to further this GOP war disaster again by missing the story the same way they missed the weapons of mass destruction lie, the same way they helped sell Americans on the idea that Iraq was an imminent nuclear threat. You remember that one? Well, the new GOP lie is that the surge is bringing us victory. And again, it's another lie that the same dull-witted mainstream media always feels compelled to help spread. Trust me, it's just another lie that has very little foundation in reality. The reality is, is that instability will continue to spin off from ethnic cleansing, fanatic rivalries that have existed for generations, chronic rampant corruption, economic and cultural chaos that Bush imported to Iraq. All that will never be something that has a happy ending. No matter how the GOP spends it, we're there for a generation. Dress it up all you want. But underneath all that lipstick, you're still only going to find a pig.
16: Bush says Iran remains a threat, despite a new national intelligence estimate that concluded Iran shut down its nuclear weapons program more than four years ago.
11: I believe before the NIE that Iran was dangerous, and I believe after the NIE that Iran is dangerous. And I believe now is the time for the world to do the hard work necessary. To convince the Iranians there is a better way forward.
16: The NIE is a consensus assessment from all 16 U.S. intelligence agencies. It starkly contradicts the Bush administration's repeated claims Iran is actively pursuing a nuclear bomb. National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley announced the findings in Washington on Monday.
11: The intelligence community has high confidence that Iran halted its covert nuclear weapons program in the fall of 2003, and they have moderate confidence that it had not restarted that program as of mid-2007.
16: The NIE goes on to conclude spy agencies do not know whether Iran intends to develop nuclear weapons. It effectively rejects a national intelligence estimate two years ago that claimed Iran was pursuing a nuclear bomb through a secret program. The estimate also stands in stark contrast to recent language from President Bush, who warned as recently as October of a World War III if Iran continued with alleged nuclear activities. At Tuesday's news conference, Bush was asked by a reporter whether he was ever asked by his intelligence team to scale back his claims.
6: I understand what you're saying about when you were informed about the NIE. Are you saying at no point, while the rhetoric was escalating, as World War III was making it into conversation, at no point nobody from your intelligence team or your administration was saying, maybe you want to back it down a little bit?
11: No, I've never, I've never told you that. Uh, having said, uh, uh, having, uh, having laid that out, I still feel strongly that Iran's a danger. Nothing's changed in this NIE that says, okay, why don't we just stop worrying about it? Quite the contrary. I think the NIE makes it clear that Iran needs to be taken seriously as a threat to peace. My opinion hasn't changed. Uh, And I just explained, Jim, that if you want to avoid a really problematic situation in the Middle East, now's the time to continue to work together. That's our message to our allies, and uh, it's uh, an important message for them to hear.
16: According to the Washington Post, intelligence officials began briefing senior members of the Bush administration on parts of the new NIE as early as July. Gareth Porter is an investigative historian and journalist specializing in U.S. national security policy. In October, he broke the story that the NIE on Iran had been held up for more than a year as part of an effort by Vice President Dick Cheney. Gareth Porter joins me now from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Democracy Now! Good morning, Amy. So explain what you understand uh, the Bush administration understood.
14: Well, I think the, it's clear that um, the intelligence community had uh, found something very different uh, with regard to the Iranian nuclear program uh, much earlier than uh, this, this fall. Uh, it's, it's very clear that it was at least uh, last spring when they began to work on a very different conclusion about uh, a, uh, an Iranian uh, nuclear weapons program uh... which said that that iran had in fact given that uh... idea up uh... and and it's it's not clear actually whether this uh, conclusion was being developed in fact in some form uh... the previous fall my story uh, based on uh, a couple of sources who were in touch with people participating in the n-i-e process uh... said that uh... the n-i-e had in fact been prepared Uh, The NIE on Iran had been prepared as of uh, last fall, was ready to be published, and was held up by the White House for political reasons. That is to say, it was not regarded as acceptable, and they wanted them to continue working on it. Uh, Now, some of that may well have been uh, at some point during 2007 that there was new information coming in which uh, caused the intelligence community to say, well, let's... Let's strengthen the finding. Let's uh, strengthen our conclusions further. But it's very clear that a large part of the holdup in this uh, NIE process was indeed the White House, and certainly it was Dick Cheney personally who was intervening in this, uh, saying that we want, uh, we want you to go back to the drawing board and look at this again, because we don't think that your conclusion that Iran uh, gave up a nuclear weapons uh, 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 weaponization uh, program uh, uh, makes sense.
16: Let's see. Early November two thousand six was that right before the two thousand six elections?
14: Well, it was uh, as I understand it. It was prepared. It was ready to go before the elections. Yes.
16: And that Dick Cheney had held it up.
14: Yes, indeed. And and then even after the elections, uh, I think uh, Cheney still wanted uh, wanted them to work on it further uh... And, and we don't know exactly what pressures were placed on the intelligence community but we do know that uh... dick cheney has in the past made visits to the cia uh, repeatedly to talk to analysts has uh, has asked them to review their findings and uh... said you know, uh... that that these findings uh, he believes are not are not uh, correct uh... so you know there's every reason to believe that cheney was intervening actively in the process uh and another uh, piece of evidence uh, to that effect uh reported in the Washington Post yesterday is that one of the arguments perhaps the most important argument being made uh, uh by the white house uh, in regard to the finding about uh, iran's nuclear program uh that was being uh, put forward by the intelligence community last spring and summer was that uh the uh This might well be uh, a a deception campaign by Iran. Uh, And that was supposedly being applied even to uh, communications intercepts. Uh, The argument was still being made uh, by uh, presumably Cheney and his staff that uh, the evidence that they were gathering reflected an Iranian deception campaign. Now interestingly, that is the same argument that was used by the neoconservatives in the Bush administration in 2001 to try to refute the uh, evidence uh, being presented to the White House by George Tenet, then CIA director, that al-Qaeda was indeed a very serious threat and that they were getting indications that there could be an attack uh, on the U.S. homeland by the summer of 2001. Uh, the, the neoconservatives, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, uh, were arguing that this could be a deception campaign by al-Qaeda and therefore we should not accept that as uh, a legitimate uh, reading of the al-Qaeda threat.
6: There are three huge things you can do to help support the show, but they only take a few seconds. Leave us a great customer review in the iTunes Music Store, dig the show on dig.com, and every month you can vote for the best of the left at podcastalley.com. Find links to all three of these most important sites on the right-hand side at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thanks for your support.
13: Intelligence estimates, which if you don't know is the collection of all of our intelligence uh community's uh, conclusions, uh they've gotten together and they came up with a doozy and said Iran doesn't even have a nuclear weapons program. Not that they're gonna take a while, not that, hey, you know what, they're gonna have a lot of trouble uh putting together the nuclear weapon that they're making. They're not even trying to make one at this point. And if they if they were trying, which they're not trying, it would take them uh... Into the next decade to make it anywhere from 2010 to 2015, because they had technical problems before they even got started. And to the it says to the best of our knowledge now that Iran is not uh, Iran. Let me give you the exact quote. Actually, quote: Iran currently is determined. Uh, Oops, oh, got the wrong quote. They're to the best of our knowledge, basically they say, and I'll get you the exact quote in a second. That uh, that they're not even trying to make a weapon. Okay. So, uh, but that's not what we heard from the president in October 17th. He had something else to say, which is curious because apparently, according to Stephen Hadley, he got this report at least several months ago, which he said might have been August, might have been September, might have been October. And as we heard from press reports, it actually might have been a year ago. So the president very likely knew that Iran
11: did not have a nuclear weapons program when he said this. So I told people that if you're interested in avoiding World War 3, it seems like you ought to be interested in preventing them from having the knowledge necessary to make a nuclear weapon.
13: All right, by the way, I got you the exact quote. At that point, the president knew that the intelligence had said, "Quote, we continue to assess with moderate to high confidence that Iran does not currently have a nuclear weapon program." So President Bush is talking about World War 3 and their nuclear weapon program when he knows they don't have one. Now, Chris, did you catch the lawyerly argument that he's going to his people are going to come back and say in that quote?
16: Um, no. Here's what the little I'm so bad at picking up their verbal tricks.
13: Yeah. Here's their cute little trick in there. Um, you know, we have to stop them from acquiring the knowledge to make a uh... nuclear weapon. Yes. And then he can come back and say, Well, I of course I knew they didn't have a nuclear weapons program, but we have to stop them from even acquiring that knowledge so that they can later have a nuclear weapons program, so that later we could bomb them so that later we could have World War Three. What? You didn't catch that? Of course that's they what I mean.
16: They started with that already. Yesterday. They were saying, you know, well, we're not saying that Iran was a problem because they had a weapon, but because they want a weapon well, you know what, I'd like a million dollars in a new car, but that doesn't mean I'm going to get it in the next decade. You know, it's (laughs) it's that other little trick they're doing. And uh, the other quote I liked from the report said that, and this is right from the NIE, um, Tehran's decision to halt its nuclear weapons program suggests it's less determined to develop nuclear weapons than we've been judging since 2005. So they're not even determined to do it. You know, Tehran just has this pipe dream that, yeah, it'd be great to have nuclear Fabulous.
13: Yeah, and at this point, the intelligence doesn't even indicate that they even want it. So I don't even know if they do want it. I don't even know if they think it would be great. So, uh, by the way, this is the same exact trick they they used with Saddam. When they got caught that there was no WMD at all, they said, oh, yeah, 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 but he could have one day acquired the knowledge to make WMD at a later time. That's why we had to kill him. (laughs) Which then applies, by the way, to every single country in the world. One day, The Philippines could acquire the knowledge to make nuclear weapons. So let's go pick the living crap out of the Philippines. (laughs) I hope we aren't gonna war with the Philippines. But you never know. Nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Because seriously, that applies to Canada, that applies to Botswana, that applies to every country in the world.
17: choice is more terrifying than the one Mr. Bush has left us with. We have either a president who is too dishonest to restrain himself from invoking World War III about Iran at least six weeks after he had to have known that the analogy would be fantastic, irresponsible hyperbole, or we have a president too transcendently stupid not to have asked at what now appears to have been a series of opportunities to do so, whether the fairy tales he either created or was fed were still even remotely plausible. The pathological presidential liar or an idiot in chief. It is the nightmare scenario of political science fiction, a critical juncture in our history, and contained in either answer, a president manifestly unfit to serve, and behind him in the vice presidency, an unapologetic warmonger who has long been seeing a world visible only to himself. After Ms. Perino's announcement at the White House last night, that the timeline is inescapable and clear now, in August, the president was told by his hand-picked major domo of intelligence, Mike McConnell, a flinty, high-strung-looking, worrying warrior who will always see more clouds than silver linings, that what everybody thought about Iran might, in essence, be crap. Yet on October 17th, the president said of Iran and its president, Ahmadinejad, I've told people that if you're interested in avoiding World War III, it seems like you ought to be interested in preventing them from have the knowledge to make a nuclear weapon. And as he said that, Mr. Bush knew that at bare minimum, there was a strong chance that his rhetoric was nothing more than words with which to scare the Iranians. Or was it, sir, to scare the Americans? Does Iran not really fit in the equation here? Have you just scribbled it into the the fill-in-the-blank on the same template you used to scare us about Iraq? In August, any commander-in-chief still able-minded or uncorrupted or both, sir, would have invoked the quality the job most requires. Mental flexibility. A bright man or an honest man would have realized no later than the McConnell briefing that the only true danger about Iran was the damage that could be done by an unhinged, irrational chicken little of a president shooting his mouth off, backed up only by his own hysteria and his own delusions of omniscience. Not Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, Mr. Bush. The chicken little of presidents is the one, sir, that you see in the mirror. And the mind reels at the thought of a vice president, fully briefed on the revised intel as long as two weeks ago, briefed on the fact that Iran abandoned its pursuit of this imminent threat four years ago. A vice president who never bothered to mention it to his boss. It is nearly forgotten today, but throughout much of Ronald Reagan's presidency, it was widely believed that he was little more than a front man for some never-viewed, behind-the-scenes string puller. Today, as evidenced by this latest remarkable historical malfeasance, it is inescapable that Dick Cheney is either this president's evil ventriloquist, or he thinks he is. What servant of any of the 42 previous presidents could possibly withhold information of this urgency and this gravity and wind up back at his desk the next morning instead of winding up before a congressional investigation or a criminal one? Mr. Bush, if if you can still hear us, If you did not previously agree to this scenario in which Dick Cheney is the actual detective and you're the Remington Steel, you must disenthrall yourself. Mr. Cheney has usurped your constitutional powers, cut you out of the information loop, and led you down the path to an unprecedented presidency in which the facts have become optional, the intel is valued less than the hunch, and the assistant runs the store. The problem is, sir, your assistance is robbing you and your country blind not merely in monetary terms, Mr. Bush, but more importantly, robbing you of the traditions and righteousness for which we have stood at great risk for centuries. Honesty, law, moral force. Mr. Cheney has helped, sir, to make your administration into the kind our ancestors saw in the 1860s and 1870s and 1880s, the ones that abandoned Reconstruction and sent this country marching backwards into the pit of American apartheid. Grant, Hayes, Garfield, Arthur, Cleveland... Presidents who will be remembered only in a blur of failure, Mr. Bush. Presidents who will be remembered as functions only of those who opposed them, the opponents whom history proved right. Grant, Hayes, Garfield, Arthur, Cleveland, Bush. Would that we could let this president off the hook by seeing him only as marionette or moron. But a study of the mutation of his language about Iran proves that though he may not be very good at it, he is himself still a manipulative Machiavellian snake oil salesman. The Bushian etymology was tracked by Dan Frumkin at the Washington Post website, and it is staggering. March 31st, Iran is trying to develop a nuclear weapon. June 5th, Iran's pursuit of nuclear weapons. June 19th, consequences to the Iranian government if they continue to pursue a nuclear weapon. July 12th. The same regime in Iran that is pursuing nuclear weapons. August 6th, this is a government that has proclaimed its desire to build a nuclear weapon. Notice a pattern trying to develop, build, or pursue a nuclear weapon. Then, sometime between August 6th and August 9th, those terms are suddenly swapped out so subtly that only in retrospect can we see that somebody has warned the president, not only that he has gone out too far on the limb of terror, but that there may not even be a tree there. McConnell or somebody must have briefed him then. August 9th, they have expressed their desire to be able to enrich uranium, which we believe is a step toward having a nuclear weapons program. August 28th, Iran's active pursuit of technology that could lead to nuclear weapons. October 4th, you should not have the know-how on how to make a nuclear weapon. October 17th, until they suspend and or make it clear that they, that their statements aren't real, yeah. I believe they want to have the capacity, the knowledge, in order to make a nuclear weapon. Before August 9th, it is trying to develop, build, or pursue a nuclear weapon. After August 9th, it's desire, pursuit, want, knowledge, technology, know-how to enrich uranium. And we are to believe, Mr. Bush, that the national intelligence estimate this week talks of the Iranians suspending their nuclear weapons program in 2003. And you talked of the Iranians suspending their nuclear weapons program on October 17th, and that term, suspending, is just a coincidence. And we are to believe, Mr. Bush, that nobody told you any of this until last week. Your insistence that you were not briefed on the NIE until last week might be legally true, something like what the definition of is is, but with the subject matter being not interns, but the threat of nuclear war. Legally, this might save you from some kind of war crimes trial, but ethically, it is a lie. It is indefensible. You have been yelling threats into a phone for nearly four months after the guy on the other end had already hung up. You Mr. Bush are a bald-faced liar. And moreover, you must have realized that John Bolton and Norman Potoritz and the Wall Street Journal editorial board are now also bald-faced liars. We are to believe that the intel community, or maybe the State Department, cooked the raw intelligence about Iran. Falsely diminished the Iranian nuclear threat to make you look bad. And you proceeded to let them make you look bad. You not only knew all of this about Iran in early August, but you also knew it was all accurate. And instead of sharing this good, calming news with the people you have obviously forgotten you represent, You merely fine-tuned your terrorizing of those people to legally cover your own backside while you filled the factual gap with sadistic visions of, as you phrased it on August 28th, a, quote, nuclear holocaust, as you phrased it on October 17th, quote, World War III. My comments, Mr. Bush, are often dismissed as simple repetitions of the phrase, George Bush has no business being president. Well, guess what? Tonight, hanged by your own words and convicted by your own deliberate lies. You, sir, have no business being president. Good night and good luck.
18: Robert Wexler. It is the duty of Congress to investigate the actions of Vice President Cheney and the Bush Administration. Our Constitution mandates that the House of Representatives hold Vice Presidents and Presidents accountable when they commit high crimes. Serious and substantive allegations have been made against Dick Cheney that relate to the precise powers of the Vice Presidency and Executive Branch, namely war and peace, safeguarding the civil liberties of Americans, and protecting the safety of our covert agents. It is Congress's constitutional role to inquire, to determine the truth. It is time for the House Judiciary Committee to hold impeachment hearings for Vice President Cheney. We have an obligation to ask questions, to determine whether, in fact, the Vice President purposefully manipulated intelligence, bringing us into war whether he knowingly ordered the illegal use of torture, whether he knowingly exposed covert agents for political purposes, whether he obstructed federal investigations. These charges are too serious to ignore. Hearings will put the evidence on the table and the facts alone will determine the outcome. We owe it to history to investigate and record the many abuses of this administration. We cannot allow the unlawful actions of President Bush and Vice President Cheney to become precedent for future administrations. I have heard from thousands of concerned citizens throughout the nation who understand the importance of these hearings, both for today and for history. Accountability and the rule of law are not partisan. They are American. They supersede politics and strategy we must hold all of our leaders accountable no exceptions join this effort by signing up at wexlerwantshearings.com. together we can make a powerful statement in support of truth and accountability
0: Okay, so I got a ton of feedback over the Know Your Enemy episode. 5% of it positive and about 95% of it negative. And I blame myself for not really explaining uh, what was going on there. I just kind of uh, threw it on the feed. Um, And I think people thought that I was uh, making some permanent changes to the format of the show, which in fact was not the case at all. I think that a lot of people on the left aren't really paying too much attention to the candidates on the right, and so I thought it would be cool to make a show out of those clips. But I didn't want to just put it together Like a regular Best of Left episode With the clips And then the musical transitions Because I figured that A lot of people had already Listened to those clips Either from watching it on CNN Or going back and Watching it on YouTube So that's why I put The music tracks Behind the clips It was just to spice it up a little bit and that's that. And I think a lot of people uh I don't know. Some people took it way too seriously. We I had one guy email me um saying that he wasn't going to listen to the show anymore. I had another person tell me that because of the type of music it was and the tracks behind the music, it was borderlining on propaganda. <laughs> I mean, all kinds of responses, but I think the, the most the most common response was that it was just too hard, too difficult to um, hear the clips during certain times when the audio was too loud or whatever. Anyway, I like the format of, of having the audio clips over the music tracks but um, that was my first time doing it so you know obviously it could have been done better and I'm not saying that I won't try to do it again in the future but if I do I will definitely let you guys know what's up that it's going to be, you know, what it is going to be before I release it. and Or I might just release it as like a, a, a forum only episode. Um, because I've actually been thinking about doing that for a while. The reason why today's show did not suck is because it was guest produced by our good friend Asim. Who has produced several shows for us in the past. All of which kicked ass. So I just want to say thank you for producing another kick ass show. And if anyone else is interested in guest producing a show. Please drop me a line. So this will be the last show of 2007. And I just wanted to take a second to thank everyone who's actually behind the scenes and keeping this show going. Jay, Asim, Jess, um, Nick and Dakota Bill, um, and Aaron Mo. people on the forums. Everyone who's sent in clips. Um... Everyone who's dug us on Dig or reviewed us on iTunes, and of course, all of our loyal listeners, thank you very much. It's been a kick ass year, and I'm, I'm gonna try to keep it going in 2008, but you know, it doesn't depend on me, it depends on you guys and the support that I'm getting from you guys, the clips that I get from you guys. Everything. It's all you. It's your show. But, um, I do have some things planned for 2008, including, um, some best of the left swag. Um, if you look at the ID3 art right now, you might get a clue as to what I'm talking about. Um, you know, I'm not saying anything, I'm just saying. And I'm currently, uh, drawing up plans to incentivize the clip submission system, um, including uh, raffles, maybe, and some extra bonus shows for uh, clip submitters. I haven't really uh, got everything planned out, but I am working on that, and uh, I'll talk about it more in a future show. So that's it. That's everything I wanted to talk about. Thanks for uh, listening if you stuck around. And I will catch you all on the flip side. See you all next year. Peace.
10: Pushing through the aisles of department stores Neon crosses and Christmas lights Credit card debts and brand new bikes The holidays are here and we're still at war The rabbi reads from the testament The banker gazes at the years investment Salvation Santa solicit for the poor Deception of democracy The philanderings of faux foreign policy The holidays are here And we're still at war Smoggy skies and fixed elections And justice strikes from our directions People with their backs against the floor Looking for someone to set us free King with fists like Muhammad Ali The holidays are here And we're still at war Your father knows what is best for you Even though it's hard to listen Your father knows he can count Couldn't count on him. Christopher Columbus New Vasco da Gama and Magellan too. The prophets of oppression grow like never before. All hail to the capitalist thief. Premon your lost ones and cover our grief. The holidays are here and we're still at war hurricane waters ravage southern towns and black and brown people are left to drown while the white house and the emergency management agency ignores the victims each other in the astrodome and the national guard says don't go home the holidays are here and we're still at war Police officers hassle the homeless Domestic disputes, alcohol and violence A jailhouse opens wide each door A corporation cuts a million employees And the factory is moving overseas The holidays are here and we're still at war Our mother knows what is best for you Even though it's hard to listen Your father knows he can count on you Though you couldn't count on him Jesus shares another tear Into a sea of two thousand years Into the eve of a new year once more of joy, resolution, sorrow, toast to health and wealth tomorrow. The holidays are here and we're still at war. Religious wars and domination, world trade and globalization, the prices of petroleum soar. Lonesome churches are packed with sinners, non-believers and new beginners The holidays are here and we're still at war Say a prayer for the less fortunate prisoners and soldiers you never have met Understand what it is they're fighting for Say a prayer for your enemies Say a prayer for the victims and their families The holidays are here And we're still at war Yes, the holidays are here And we're still at war
0: Okay, so I couldn't end the year on a downer of a show and i can't end this show on a good but eh, let's just admit it that song is a little depressing so here's one more for you guys it's um off daft punk's new live album this one goes out to everybody out there who's working for change all right peace out guys
3: Yeah.